Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi, Jim. Good to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand. Packed agenda as always. I know that you want to have a discussion about some of the latest Irish data that's out, some very important numbers associated with house prices and trade data. And even I might have something to add about that. Uh, I think we should talk about the debt ceiling negotiations that are going on in the United States. That could be, and I stress could, be very, very significant for financial markets. We've talked about it before, but it seems to be reaching something of a conclusion one way or the other. I see Joe Biden has cut short his attendance at the G7 in order to try and uh, conclude his talks with the leader of the House Democrats. So we'll chat about that and what might happen next, because that's going to be incredibly consequential. It already has, actually, because it's already affected markets. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said it's already raised borrowing costs in the all-important American bond market, and that affects everything, of course. So a debt ceiling conversation is definitely called for. We've had, closer to home over the last few days, the EU Commission has published its latest economic forecasts, and they certainly merit something of a deep dive. And if we get time today, I want to talk about, of all things, Japan, because there are some really interesting things going on there, particularly with respect to its stock market. But the fact that the Japanese stock market is at a 30-year high is merit of note. It speaks to something else that's, I think, always merits a discussion about uh, global financial markets, investing trends and investing behaviour. But the behaviour of the Japanese stock market, interesting though it is in its own right, I think is also relevant in the context of geopolitics, particularly as uh, foreign investors are 
increasingly thinking about, if not actually acting upon, divesting from China in relation to what's going on geopolitically, as Joe Biden in particular encourages us to think about uh, friend-shoring. And one way stock market investors are reputed to be doing this is by putting some money in Japan and not China. So if we get a chance, we'll talk about that. Before we kick off, Jim, on the Irish data, I just want a small piece of housekeeping, which is first to thank those listeners who very kindly post reviews, good, bad or indifferent. Some of them are bad, some of them are very indifferent. Thankfully, most of them are good on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. And it's always great to see and and strongly encourage people to do it because we find it incredibly helpful when people do post reviews of any kind. Feedback is always welcome, genuinely. But the one thing that uh, has arisen as a result of reading quite a few recent reviews is that people are using those reviews to ask us questions. And uh, particularly on Apple, I have yet to find a way of interacting with readers' reviews. There doesn't seem to be any way that I can respond to those questions. So let me encourage our listeners, if you have a question, a query or a comment that might need some kind of response, go to our Substack site, cjpeconomics.substack.com and post your comment or question uh, there because that way you'll get a response. So my apologies for not responding to questions on Apple Podcast Reviews. But as I say, I haven't found a way of being able to do so. That might be my technological inadequacy, but I have, I have looked. Uh, one question that we got, Jim, that I think is more for you than me, is are we thinking of doing a live show? <laughs> I'd love to, Chris. Um, <laughs> yeah. if, if, if I felt it would work, I'd love to. So um, maybe it's something maybe we should the, probably maybe, think about. And uh, maybe, if anybody has tour. any advice to offer... Um, I'd certainly welcome it, but I, I think it'd be a great idea. How about a tour with a T-shirt with all the dates on? Exactly. Anyway, could, yeah, from yes, the, from that's the, a good from, idea. From the ridiculous to the sublime. Um, why don't you kick off by telling us about that latest Irish data in particular with respect to house prices and also the all-important trading sector? OK, Chris, we're back into um, a few interesting and juicy statistics coming out of Ireland. We've just got the March merchandise exports figures and um, it gives us a picture of the first quarter of the year. And for the first time in quite some time, um, if you look at a year-on-year comparison, merchandise exports were down 2.6% on the first quarter of last year. Um, Exports to Great Britain up by 13.7%. Exports to the EU27 up by 10.8%. And wait for this, exports to the United States down 22.1%. So I just delved in to see what exactly was going on. The, The weakness is coming through on the pharmaceutical and medical side, down 15% in the first quarter, down 21.7% in the month of March alone. And all of that decline is attributable to a reduction of 26.2% in the first quarter in chemical and uh, medical sorry, pharmaceutical and medical um, exports to the United States. So there is something interesting going on here. Um, perhaps this is a just, it's, it's very difficult and probably dangerous to jump to any conclusions based on 
the data for a month or two. But I am minded of somebody, and I can't remember who, who contacted us sometime last year, basically predicting that this is exactly what was going to happen, that following the COVID surge and the dramatic increase in pharma exports, particularly to the United States, uh, that it would run out of steam and that the thing would weaken and would normalise. And perhaps that's exactly what's happening at the moment. I suppose the interesting point about all of this will be, you know, what does it say about the health of the chemical and pharma sector in Ireland? Does that have implications for employment? And I suppose more importantly, does it have implications for corporation tax revenues. But um, I'm not jumping to any conclusions yet, but it is one to watch. And certainly I will be keeping an eye on it over the coming months. Any ideas, Chris? Well, it's certainly early evidence that there is something of a slowdown going on, particularly in the United States. But I'm also minded by your comment that you don't want to jump to any conclusions straight away, because this data does jump around from month to month, from quarter to quarter in very in a very noisy way that doesn't really send out any signals. So I think you're right to say, let's keep a close eye on it. But we have, I think, in a broader context, observed lots of negativity about the global economy not coming through in the numbers. The negativity is there in forecasts, particularly the IMF and lots of others. Um, And I know you're going to talk about the EU's commission forecast, particularly in that context. That thing that we've spoken about before, that the slowdown is is in the forecast, but not in the numbers. Could this be the canary in the coal mine? Um, which is the first real sign of a global slowdown. Because if there is the epitome of the small global trading economy, it is Ireland. And so if world trade is slowing down significantly, if the world economy is starting to slide, then one would presume that economies like Ireland would be feeling it at the very early first stages. So it it is early days yet. Let's not overinterpret the numbers, but it's consistent with finally, perhaps some of that slowdown starting to appear in the numbers. Yeah, we'll watch it. Uh, The other piece of data was the housing market. Uh, Year to March, national average house prices increased by 3.9%. And that's down from 15.1% annual growth rate in March of last year. So a significant deterioration. And within that, outside of Dublin, prices, the rate of annual price increase slowed to 5.7%. And within Dublin, price inflation has slowed to 1.7%. That's the lowest we've seen in some time. And just looking at what this tells us about the overall trend in house prices, national average house prices peaked in this cycle in December. And between December and March, average prices have fallen by one and a half percent. Outside of Dublin between December and March, prices have declined by 0.7 percent. But in Dublin, the market peaked in September of last year. And between September and March, prices have now fallen by 3.1 percent. Okay, these may be relatively minor and modest falls in the context of the sort of growth we've seen over the last few years, but um, it is significant. And it's also, I think, worth pointing out that these data 
reflect transactions that occurred some months ago. So there is a little bit of a time lag. And I suspect, you know, when we move into sort of the June data, we'll be getting a better picture of exactly what's happening on the ground, um, you know, in March, April. But it does signify a significant deceleration in the rate of house price inflation. And I would have to say uh, no surprises there, because when you get the sort of interest rate increases we've seen over the last 12 months, when you see all of the global economic uncertainty, the global headwinds, the significant reduction in consumer confidence we saw last year, albeit it has improved in the first four months of this year. But all of that stuff, you know, definitely is impacting on the property market. Um, I say bring it on. I think it's great news. It's great to see house prices decelerating. And um, I think they need to go into decline as well, to be perfectly honest, to try and bring housing back into a more affordable realm for many people. But it just shows you, Chris, the impact that interest rate rises have on the housing market, something we've spoken about many times, and it is certainly feeding through. So good news in my view. Yeah, um, absolutely, Jim. And uh, the couple of things I'd say about that to trail our next podcast, because we have been setting the agenda for that, because there is so much to talk about at the moment. There's some fascinating data and opinion coming out of the UK on something called the debt bomb. And what I'll be talking about in that next podcast is the effect of, in recent years, people taking out fixed rate mortgages and the way in which most people in the UK, and I suspect this might to a greater or lesser extent be, be true in Ireland, have yet to feel the effect of higher interest rates on their mortgages. So the impact of higher interest rates on households has yet to be felt in its entirety. And it's going to take another couple of years in the UK at least to work through. And the stats actually are quite amazing for the hit that is yet to come to household incomes and the way it affects particularly poorer households and younger households. So it's to do with the fact that so many people have fixed their mortgages and have yet to feel higher interest rates. So that effect, if the island is anything like the UK, there's a lot more to come with respect to uh, a hit to house prices and housing market activity. The second thing I'd say, I won't say any more about that because that would be going into what we're saying next time, is that um, I saw something posted on Twitter today by Gerard Brady, who I think is the chief economist for IBEC, the Irish Business Association. And he was pointing to the data on stamp duty, the taxes that are raised some of the taxes that are raised from transactions in property, and they have been coming off big time. And he concludes, I think quite rightly, that consistent with the data that you've just said, that the taxation that's being raised from transactions in, in housing, that tax revenue is showing signs that the housing market peaked quite, quite, a, quite a while ago, actually, probably in the middle summer of last year, as, as you rightly say. So there are a range of indicators suggesting a, that the housing market on both sides of the Irish Sea is weakening and that there are reasons to think that there's a lot more to come. So that, that's what I'd say on housing, Jim. 
bring it on, as you say. Okay, let's move on, Chris. The big item out there uh, that has really started to ramp up in terms of getting attention over the last few days has been the debt ceiling in the United States. And the United States is kind of unusual in the sense that it has a legislated budget and then it needs separate authorization for the debt that this budget entails. Um, so hence there is a debt ceiling. So basically it's a political advice, uh, device, excuse me, that places a hard limit on how much money the government can borrow. It's and bonkers, that currently is set at 314 it's bonkers, absolutely. Set at $31.4 trillion, um, equivalent to 117% of GDP. And um, around the 1st of June, it is anticipated that that sailing, ceiling will be breached and that at that stage, a few things can happen. Uh, number one, um, a deal could have been done to raise the ceiling. And Martin Wolf was saying in the Financial Times this morning, that to his knowledge, it has been raised 90 times over since the legislation was passed. So there are often concerns, as we got in 2011 and 2013, in the run-up to the debt ceiling being breached, where a deal is done. Um, but there is a bit more nervousness around it this time, and I think it reflects the absolute barmy nature um, an extreme divisiveness in the US political system. I mean, basically, the Republicans are looking for dramatic cuts in spending. And in fact, uh, Martin Wolf has dated today saying that the Republican proposal is that there will be a 47%, they want a 47% cut in total real non-military discretionary spending between 2024 and 2033. That would represent a dramatic um, cut in public spending um, in an environment where, you know, there is an aging population, there's a growing population and so on. So a 47% cut in spending is absolutely dramatic. But that is the bargaining point that the Republicans have. Um, so basically, it has now become a political football because um, if you think about Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, he was elected to that post um, in round 15 of the voting, which wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement. And if you remember, to get elected, he had to make serious concessions to some um, wingnuts in the extreme right of the Republican Party. So in a sense, it is that extreme rump of the Republican Party um, that now holds significant sway over um, McCarthy's ability to negotiate a deal with Biden. And uh, that rump of the Republican Party appears to believe that the potential catastrophe, economic and financial, that and social, of course, that would follow um, a default by the US government um, would do more damage to the administration, to the people of America. Um, it, it's, it's an absolutely nuts situation and it just demonstrates clearly the extreme dangerous and divisive nature of the US political system. Uh, President Biden has cut short his trip overseas to come back. So it is now starting to ramp up. Uh, and basically, if a debt deal is not done, if the ceiling is not lifted, 
um, the US government will be left with a few choices. Number one, you know, as debt matures um, and particularly short dated Treasury bills mature, they will not be rolled over. Um, in other words, there will be a default or the alternative would be um well, sorry, it's not the alternative. In addition to that, you would see uh, the government having to let public sector workers go to start stop spending money, basically. So the economic and financial consequences would be absolutely dramatic. Uh, but that's where we are in terms of the US political spectrum at the moment. Um, I suppose my gut instinct and the gut instinct of the markets at the moment is that a deal will eventually be done when we get to the wire. Uh, But we are approaching the wire. So I think there is a lot less certainty about a deal being done this time than during previous um, debt debacle 
was not in a position to pay back those bills as they mature and pay the interest and the principal on those bills. Um, well, then the risk-free status of that asset um, becomes seriously questionable. So from the perspective of, you know, many U.S. companies hold those treasury bills as collateral. Many traders in financial markets hold those bills as collateral. So if that collateral becomes significantly riskier due to default, um, you'd have to think it would significantly disrupt um, business to business activity and also um, financial markets, you know, bond yields, equity markets, and so on. So it, it would be the first time the United States would ever have defaulted on its debt. So we don't know what the consequences would be, but I, I just think on the balance of risk, it is not something that Congress should be prepared to stand over. Uh, but as I said, we have this nutty tail wagging the dog at the moment, and um, it does look very dangerous to me, I have to say. I agree. I think that it almost certainly will be a financial catastrophe in terms of markets. I think the stock market would crater. Um, that's a technical term. I think bond yields would shoot up. And I think it could well lead to a US economic recession that flows from that fi those financial market consequences. Um, so they're playing with fire. And as you rightly say, it's the politics of this that are A, fascinating, but only fascinating B, in a car crash sort of way. The, the calculation that the Republicans seem to have uh, done is that the damage to Joe Biden will be far greater than the damage to the economy, or the damage to Joe Biden will be worth the economic price as we head into the 15, 16 months or so before the next presidential election. And uh, it's, a, it's a grotesque political and economic calculus, if you ask me. It's, it's bizarre. And uh, it, as you rightly say, it illustrates the absolutely wingnut, batshit, crazy nature of US politics at the moment. The whole idea of a debt ceiling is nuts to begin with. And it was nuts when they first started thinking about it all those decades ago. And the fact that we have to go through this every couple of years is just a waste of everybody's time, energy, and ultimately money. And there are real economic consequences of this. There are, there's real economic pain that flows from this. Arguably, it's already been felt. Um, so this is, at, at best, it's grossly irresponsible. And I think at worst, it's just wicked, wicked playing with people's lives via the economy to make uh, party political points. But enough of that, Jim. Um, we well, watched that with Chris yeah, can I just say one thing? There was an interesting quote from Martin Wolf in that Financial Times piece where he basically says, in the event of a default, it would do serious damage to trust in the United States and would send out a strong message that the lunatics had taken over the asylum. So the long-term damage to the reputation of the states you know, would be significant. But sorry, Chris, yeah, let's I, move I on. Worry. No, no, just, I think that's a very good um, noting of Martin Wolf's comments. Um, I worry that that ship has already sailed in terms of the damage to the US, US's reputation. It, it started in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump, unfortunately. Jim, I'll pin you to the wall. Do you think they're going to default? No. OK, all right. Uh, I think... Right. I, I haven't a clue. They Do have, you? They have to reach a compromise, don't they? The, the, I would think so. Yeah. I would think so. Tell, if there's any semblance of sanity, definitely. Tell me about the European Commission's latest economic forecast, Jim, and why they're so interesting. 
Yeah, Chris, back in April when the International Monetary Fund published its spring economic outlook, um, I remember commenting to you that if you read the narrative, you wouldn't get up out of bed. But the forecast numbers actually didn't reflect that narrative. They were significantly more positive than the very negative narrative. I got the same sort of um, impression from the Commission's forecast earlier this week. Okay, they start off by saying that the EU economy is proving um, very resilient, that lower energy prices, abating supply chain constraints and strong labour markets are actually um, keeping the EU economy growing. But then they go on and talk about significant downside risks and they believe those downside risks have increased. So if they talk about the persistence of core inflation, that is inflation excluding food and energy. Uh, they talk about the impact of higher interest rates and the financial stress and risk aversion that is likely to arise from the banking difficulties we've seen in the United States in particular. So on balance, the narrative was pretty negative. But then if you look at the growth forecast, and listen, I'm not getting carried away about this, but this year the Eurozone is forecast to grow by 1.1%. Next year it is forecast to grow by 1.6%. Um, and, you know, Germany expected to grow by just 0.2% this year, 1.4% next year. So basically what the Commission is saying is that 2023 will see relatively low levels of economic activity, but that growth will start to pick up in 2024. But yet, based on the narrative contained, I would not be jumping to those conclusions. And I, I think it's also worth pointing out that um, interest rates technically take nine to 12 months to feed through the system. So, and, and we're only in an interest rate tightening cycle in the Eurozone since late July of last year. So there's still a distance going. We've obviously seen cumulative rate, rate increases being delivered since then, the most recent one being um, in May. Okay, so it is likely over the next 12 months that that interest rate tightening will really start to impact on the Eurozone economy. But yet the Commission's forecasts are not quite reflecting that. I'm confused, Chris, to be honest, but that's the nature of economic forecasting, I suppose. Yeah, it's consistent, as you say, with lots of things that we've seen around the place, not just from the IMF. I've had occasion this week to speak to lots of investment bankers, uh, forecasting uh, research analysts, and they're all saying very similar things, which is that all of the risks going forward are for lower growth and higher inflation than currently is reflected in what we're actually seeing in the numbers and what we're seeing in, in other forecasts. And I haven't met in recent weeks, either through my reading of official forecasts or meeting with investment bankers and other economists, anybody that's optimistic over the next year or two. So it's quite striking that there is now, a, um, unusually, I think, a monolithic consensus out there amongst for the forecasting community that the outlook is pretty poor. Nobody's suggesting it's going to be catastrophic <laughs> unless there's a debt default in the United States. But it does seem that people are saying they expect growth numbers to come in weak and inflation numbers to stay stubbornly high. And so they conclude that's quite poor for stock markets uh, going forward, poor environment and that interest rates are going to stay higher for longer than perhaps the market 
currently thinks. So it, it, it's in the nature of consensus that uh, it's as wrong as often as it's right. I, I don't know whether it, it's actually wrong oftener. That, that's not a word, is it? Then, it, then it's right. But um, I'm always wary of monolithic consensus because that means that we are setting ourselves up for a very, very big surprise. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly looks um, from the if we, if we take as read, if we if we take it literally, if we think there is information in the views of all of these experts, the outlook is deteriorating. Do you, Jim, what did they say about Ireland? Anything interesting? Um, reasonably upbeat about Ireland. They're talking about GDP growth of 5.5% this year, 5% next year. Uh, the Commission doesn't forecast modified domestic demand or that adjusted inflation. But based on a 5.5% GDP growth rate, I think that would equate to around 3 3.5% growth in modified domestic demand. So the, the Commission is broadly upbeat in Ireland. Um, it cites the strong public finances, the strong labour market um, as two, two of the most important driving forces. So... Ireland set to outperform the rest of the euro area over the next couple of years is the basic prognosis of the Commission. So fingers crossed that they're right on that at least. Jim, I Absolutely. To, I want to conclude this podcast with a quick comment about Japan to note the really interesting fact that its stock market is doing very well. And those are words I have not used for quite a long period of time. Uh, ever since the Japanese bubble really burst uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, it was a heck of a bubble and it took a long time to deflate. But Japanese equities have not reached their all-time highs, but they're certainly at a 30-year high. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, it's to do with the bursting of the bubble. Valuations in Japan finally reached attractive enough levels to suck in investors. Uh, the Japanese growth story is sufficient to get people uh, interested in its stock market again. But I think there's something geopolitical going on as well. And as I suggested earlier, I think uh, fund managers, investors are looking at Japan as an alternative uh, destination for Asian investment compared to China. And that's connected with Joe Biden's um, and America's, because uh, it is an example, as we discussed with Noah Smith on that um, rather excellent podcast we did with him a week or two ago, uh, friendshoring or deglobalization or whatever you want to call it, is causing investors to think very seriously about the world splitting up into factions, into, into blocks, into trading blocks, into investable blocks, and blocks that are uninvestable. And a lot of people are starting to ask the question, at least, is China investable anymore? Will you make any money? Or even if you do make some money in China, will you be able to get it out again? All those questions are being asked. And responding to that bipartisan uh, attempt to... Uh, reduce exposure to China from an economic and financial perspective. I suspect Japan is one of the beneficiaries of that. So that, that's very interesting. These sorts of effects are always the unintended consequences of these sorts of actions. These things happen in ways that nobody thought. I didn't think anybody would be uh, talking about Japan's stock market being at a 30-year high this year, but there we are. It just goes you to show that investing, like a lot of things in life, Jim, is pretty, pretty unforecastable. So unless you've got anything there you want to say about that, Jim, I think we should probably wrap today's podcast. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.